Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And Paul writes here in verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. In our recent sermons, we've been studying Jesus as he sits upon his throne of glory in heaven. He came into this world as a man. He lived his life of perfect obedience. He died upon the cross, and then he ascended back up into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the heavenly Father. And we have been in our recent sermons looking at him as he sits upon that throne of glory. And... More specifically, we have been considering the heart of Christ as he sits in heaven. And what is his heart toward us who are his disciples here below? Has his heart changed in any of its love, its affection, and its kindness toward us? Now that he is in glory and we are still in this world of so much sin and trouble and confusion, and we have found that his heart is still the same, that he has not changed in any of his love for us, any of his compassion, even though he is the great high priest in heaven, he still has a heart full of sympathy and kindness for us here below. And in our recent sermon last Sunday morning, we began to look at the influence of the three persons of the Trinity upon Jesus Christ as a man, as our great high priest in heaven. This is the way the Puritan Thomas Goodwin in his book, The Heart of Christ, approaches this subject because salvation is always a work of all three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this is the way it has always been. And this is the way it still continues with Christ on the throne of heaven. It is salvation is the work of all three persons of the Trinity. All of them are engaged. All of them are attentive, absorbed, in the great work of saving God's people and bringing his elect into eternal salvation. And the love, the mercy, the power of God, all three persons of the Trinity is now being mediated to us through the one man, Christ Jesus. That's what verse 5 is telling us. There is one God in heaven, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there is one mediator between us and God, the man, Christ Jesus, all the power, grace, and love of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are mediated through him to us. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the influence of the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, upon his beloved Son. And the way that Goodwin stated it is that there was this perpetual commandment of the Father to his Son to love sinners on earth, an eternal commandment of God the Father to his Son given to him in eternity that he was to come into this world and he was to perpetually and always love sinners, that he would always receive them to himself, that he would show his love by giving them eternal life 
that he would guard them and keep them so that he would not lose any of them until the last day when he would return and raise them all up into a glorious resurrection and into the eternal kingdom. And this commandment of God the Father to his beloved Son is a commandment that still remains in force in heaven today. The Son of God is seated on the throne of glory at the right hand of God the Father. And this commandment, this perpetual commandment has not ceased. And even now in glory, the commandment of the Father to the Son to love sinners on earth, it remains and it will continue to remain until all of God's people are saved and the last day of Christ's return and the resurrection has come. This morning, we continue to look at the influence of the three persons of the Trinity upon Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And this morning, we look at the influence of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, upon the man, Christ Jesus, the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how Goodwin deals with the subject, the influence of the Father upon the humanity of Christ, and then secondly, the influence of the Son of God on the humanity of Christ as well. So, as we begin this morning, we need to put on our thinking caps more than normal because the sermon is heavy in theology. And so please hang in there with me best you can. The first thing we need to consider this morning is the two natures of Christ, the divine, the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest. Jesus is that one unique person who has two natures, divine and human, comprised of both divine and human. He is God from all eternity, the Son of God, and he is equal in power, has always been equal in power, majesty, glory with the Father. But in the incarnation, he took to himself a true humanity like ours in all things. This is what John says in, first, in John chapter 1 in verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, His divine nature. But then in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His adding to Himself now a human nature. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Son had always been with the Father from eternity. But in the fullness of time, he sent him forth into the world, and the Son of God was born of a woman under the law. And the result of the incarnation is that Jesus is now fully and truly God, and he is fully and truly man in one person forever. The two natures are distinct from one another. His human nature is as much a human nature as if he were not God. And his divine nature is as much a divine nature as if he was not man. He is true man as if he were never God. He was true God as if he was never man. 
The two natures, divine and human, are now inseparably united together in this great mystery of the one person of Jesus Christ, and this is how he is presented to us in the scripture. This is the way the church has always understood the person of Christ since the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, our 1689 Confession of Faith on the chapter of Christ the Mediator, states it this way, and I gave you copies of it in paragraph two at the end there. It states that two whole, perfect and distinct natures, very important words, two whole, perfect and distinct natures, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without conversion of one nature to the other without composition or confusion of the two natures, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And we see this distinction between the two natures here in this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, where the apostle says in the first half of the verse, he, he emphasizes the unity of God. There is only one God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there is one mediator, one mediator between God and men. And the mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator must represent two parties who are to be reconciled to one another. In this case, God and men. And this is who Jesus is. He is the one mediator. And Paul speaks of him here as the man, the man, Christ, Jesus. His deity is assumed. But Paul emphasizes his humanity. This is who he is as the great mediator. He is the man, Christ, Jesus. Exalted to the throne of God in heaven, He is God and he is man. His humanity is glorified. He sits there as the one glorious mediator between God and all men on earth. It is true that before his incarnation, before his incarnation through the Old Testament period, he always was the one mediator between God and man because that's who God appointed him to be, the mediator. He always was. But now, after his incarnation, the Son of God has become a man. And so he is the mediator. He is the man, Christ Jesus. There is a man who sits on the throne of glory in heaven as our mediator. Apparently, from this verse, very clear to us that It is proper for us, it is justifiable for us to look at him as our mediator, as a man on the throne of God. This is who he is. He is a man, the man Christ Jesus. He is God and he is man. So from our perspective, we see him as man. We may. God looks upon him as God. We may look upon him as the man Christ Jesus, both in the one person forever. We see this same distinction if we 
between the divine and the human natures, if we turn back to that verse that we've looked at recently in the book of Hebrews and chapter 4. Hebrews and chapter 4 and verses 14 and 15. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In verse 14, the writer to the Hebrews, he identifies, he tells us who Jesus, our, who our great high priest is. He says he is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is his human name given to him at his birth. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel said to Joseph, for he shall save his people from his sin. So he is the man Jesus. The Son of God is his divine name from eternity. He has always been. He will always be God, the Son, the Son of God. So this is our great high priest. He is God and man in one person forever. But then in verse 15, in verse 15, he speaks of his sympathy. And this sympathy, it is clear here, it comes from his humanity, from his human experience of temptations and suffering while he was on earth. We have, is what he is saying by the double negative, we have a great high priest who is fully able to sympathize with us, but that sympathy flows from his human nature because he passed through as a man all of our trials, our sorrows, our temptations in this world. And by his own human experience as the man on, in, on the throne of heaven, he is able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses and all of our troubles here below. But then verse 15 speaks of his human nature. And his human experience, verse 16, speaks of his divine nature because he gives mercy and grace to help. We see verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy is the forgiveness of our sins and only God can forgive sins. Grace is strength that he sends to us in our times of weakness that we may be able to endure. It is a divine strength and grace that he sends. So Jesus, the great high priest, he is God and he is man in heaven. Verse 15 speaks of his human experience and out of his humanity, he sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses and verse 16 speaks of his divine nature by which he is able to send to us mercy for our sins, forgiveness, and grace and strength to help us in every time of need. Now we may believe, as we have said before, that he, God, the Son of God, was always able to sympathize with us even before his incarnation. It was a sympathy, though, of omniscience, a sympathy from afar, but now after his incarnation, he has the sympathy of human experience 
from his own human suffering. And it's interesting that our confession of faith makes this distinction of the two natures in Christ as the mediator. We see this in what I handed out in paragraph 7, the second paragraph there. You see that it states Christ in the work of mediation. In the work of mediation, he acts according to both natures. By each nature doing that which is proper to itself. A marvelous statement of the person of Christ as our mediator and how he acts toward us according to both natures, his human and his divine nature. And by each nature, he does what is proper to us. That's what we see here in this passage in the book of Hebrews. According to his human nature, he has sympathy for us. According to his divine nature, he sends mercy and grace to help in our times of need. So our goal this morning is to come to a fuller understanding of the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ now that he is ascended back into heaven. It is a true humanity, a sinless humanity, but it must be a humanity that was fully able to embrace the divine character of the Son of God in love, compassion, and sympathy, which he had from all eternity. We'll try to step through this in different steps. The first thing we want to look at here now, the second point in our sermon this morning, is the eternal nature of the Son of God. We are looking at the eternal nature of the Son of God. What was the nature, what was the character of God the Son before he came into the world from all eternity? As the second person of the Trinity, he shared in all the divine attributes, all the power, majesty that belonged to the Father, belonged to the Son as well from eternity. I am in the Father and the Father is in me, he says. I and the Father, we are one. We are one God from all eternity and all that the Father has belongs to me. All the attributes of God are his as the eternal Son of God. Sometimes we read in the Bible that phrase, the only begotten God. We see it, for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We see it again in John chapter 3 and verse 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that phrase, his only begotten son, is perhaps better translated as, and as it is in many Bibles, his only son. Because it speaks of the uniqueness of the son of God in relation to the father. He is the unique person. He is the one and the only son of the father. There is none other like him, and there could never be another who could stand in that eternal and unique relation to the Father. He is the one and only person who could be the Son of God, the one and only Son of God the Father. 
And as the one and only Son of the Father, he must be like the Father in every way. In all the nature of the Father, it must be the same as the nature of the Son. God is love, the Bible says. Speaking of the Father, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, he is love in his eternal nature. He has always been filled with love. His being is one of love. And so that very same character must belong to God the Son as well. Paul calls the Father the God of love. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prayed, show me thy glory. God passed by Moses on the mountain in front of him and he proclaimed to Moses the glory of his nature. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness, who stores up and guards loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And this description of the Father in Exodus chapter 33 becomes a refrain throughout the entire Old Testament period and even in the darkest times of the people of God when they were under the righteous judgment of God for their sins, their rebellions, the prophets would continually come back to this refrain of he is gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and mercy because it was the only hope, the only way of escape for them in the most difficult times. We see this. We should look at one passage in this regard. It's found in the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 30. We'll turn back there. Second Chronicles and chapter 30. Second Chronicles chapter 30, and we will begin reading at verse 6. And the context here is that the Assyrian armies have come down from the north. They have begun to destroy the nation of Judah. They have already done so in that northern kingdom of Israel. And they have now come down to Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. And so the country is in great distress, danger, and the nation is in great trouble and about to perish because of the judgment of God upon their sins. And so Hezekiah sends out couriers throughout the land with a message in verse 6. And the couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters in the northern, this is the northern and southern kingdom, with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, you hear him, he's crying out to them, O sons of Israel, he says, return. He says, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel. And why should they return? That he may return to those of you who have escaped and are left from the hands of the king, kings of Assyria. There are a few there who have escaped the terrible catastrophe that has taken place. If they return to him, he will return to them. And then he warns them, he says in verse 7, 
Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror, a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord, yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which he has consecrated forever and serve the Lord your God that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion. Therefore, those who led them captive will remain to this land, will return to this land. For the Lord, your God, is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So here he is the same God as in the days of Moses. His nature as God the Father has not changed. And here even in the darkest and the worst of times, when the sins, the sins of the people have righteously brought his anger upon them, if they turn from their sins at that point, even at that point, if they return to him, he will return to them. Because judgment is his strange design. And he delights in mercy. And he will still have compassion upon them. Because he is always gracious and compassionate. And slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And in truth, it is the same in the days of Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 17. Nehemiah said, thou art a God of forgiveness gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Micah put it this way in chapter 7 and verse 18. He says, who is a God like thee? Who is like thee? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love so this is the character of God the Father. This was his glory. This was what he most delighted in. And our point here is that because this was the nature of God the Father, it had to be the nature of God the Son from eternity as well. That the eternal Son of God, the only, the one and only Son of the Father, his nature had to be perfectly conformed to the nature of the Father as they shared the one divine essence in the one God. A nature of love, kindness, goodness, and patience. The Son of God, in his divine nature, in his divine nature, was always gracious, compassionate, and slow to anger, and always abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. So that is the divine nature from eternity of the Son of God. Now our next point this morning is the human nature of Christ in the incarnation. We've seen the divine nature from eternity. Now we look at the human nature in his incarnation. And when the eternal Son of God came into the world and he became incarnate, the human nature that he took had to be a true humanity 
like ours in all things except sin. To be our representative, he had to have a humanity like ours in all of our weakness, limitations, frailties. Yet it had to be a humanity without any sin. The holy offspring, as the angel called him at his birth, he will come forth the holy offspring. But not only did he have to be true humanity and without sin, he had to have a human nature which was perfectly consistent with his eternal nature as the Son of God. He had to have a human nature that was compatible with all of the love, the kindness, the mercy, and the compassion of his nature as the eternal Son of God. Now, God is sovereign over the hearts of all men. In this world, he fashions the hearts of all men. He gives to each one of us particular personalities and dispositions. He makes some of us with one form of character or another, some to be kind and more compassionate, some more merciful, some more intelligent perhaps, some more generous. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1, the king's heart is like the channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. He's sovereign over kings. In, in Ezra chapter 7, the Babylonian king, Artaxerxes, he opened up the treasures of Babylon to send Ezra back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And Ezra said, blessed be God, the God of our fathers who has put such a thing into the heart of the king to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. We read in the book of Exodus of how the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. We read of how he put skills into the heart of Bezael to build the tabernacle. He said, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom in understanding in knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship. And then we read at other times in the Bible how God gave generous hearts to his people to give for the tabernacle and then for the building of the temple. Many examples could be given. We ourselves, we are responsible for our own hearts. And our sins belong to us and to us alone. But it is still true that the Lord in his sovereignty fashions the hearts of all men. It is part of the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We are responsible. He is sovereign. A mystery that we cannot fully comprehend. And our point is that when the Son of God came into the world, the human nature he received had to be one that was in perfect conformity with his eternal nature as the God of love, compassion, gentleness, full of kindness, full of patience, full of mercy, and full of sympathy and goodness toward mankind like us in all of our weaknesses, yet without any sin. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, He had to be made like us, like his brethren in all things, that he might be a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now we can turn to a passage in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 
chapter 10. And verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. So, the, the writer here, in the beginning of the verse, he introduces the verse. He comes into the world. He speaks here of Christ in the incarnation coming into the world. And it is Christ who is now speaking in the quotation here that comes from Psalm 40. And Jesus, the Son of God now, the Son of God speaks here. He says, sacrifice and offering thou the Father has not desired. Because those sacrifices, those offerings of the Old Testament could never take away any sin. They could never ultimately be God's desire. But what would be the solution? What would, what would be the solution to the great problem of human sin? The only answer to that problem is an incarnation. The Son of God coming into the world and giving himself as a sacrifice for sin. And that's what he speaks of now in the second half of the verse. He says, but a body. He's referring to his entire humanity here by the part called the body. But a body thou hast prepared for me. God the Father has prepared a body, a humanity for me when I come into the world. Now the word here, prepared, means to fully equip something, to perfect it with a perfect quality, to make it fully able and to make it ready for, for the demands that it will face. That's what the word means. The same word is used in this book of Hebrews two other times. We should look at them briefly in chapter 11 and verse 3. In chapter 11, in verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared. There's the same word. The worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The heavens above, the earth, the seas, everything that we see in this universe, he says it was prepared. It was fashioned it was made in a particular way by God in the first six days of the creation so that it was a perfectly equipped creation, fully ready for the inhabitation of the human race, a perfect creation as God first made it. The second place we see this same word is in chapter 13. In chapter 13, in verse 20 and 21. Chapter 13 and verse 20, he says, But now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you, there's the same word, prepare you, enable you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here the Father equips and he enables his people to do his will. So if we turn back to chapter 10, back to chapter 10 and verse 5. 
Chapter 10 and verse 5, and here we see what the Son is saying. What the Father did for him when he came into the world, the Father prepared for him a perfect humanity. The Father equipped him with a human nature that was fully adequate for all the work which he had to do. A humanity consistent with and able to embrace all of the love, the sympathy, the compassion, mercy of God, the Son from all eternity. The humanity now inseparably joined to the eternal divine nature, the humanity perfectly compatible with all the glory of that eternal divine nature. Prepared, he prepared the universe God the Father prepared the universe. And so he prepared his beloved son and equipped him for all the life of obedience and even to the death of the cross where he would give himself a sacrifice for human sin. When the Son of God came into the world and he took our humanity to himself, he was now too distinct natures, God and man forever, and the two natures were inseparably joined together. Distinct, and yet each, each one never, could never be separated from the other for all eternity. He is now God and man forever as our great high priest. He needed his humanity to suffer, to live a life of obedience for us. And he needed his humanity, his perfect humanity, to offer it upon the cross as the sacrifice for our sins. But he needed his humanity, not just in life on earth, and not just for the death of the cross, but he needed it also to be our great high priest to sympathize with us from the throne of heaven above. Not just in life on earth, and not just in death upon the cross, and then, as if somehow after the cross, he would shed his humanity and leave it behind, because he needed it no more, and he would ascend back up into heaven and sit there as God alone forever. Perhaps we've subtly thought of it in that fashion without really realizing that once he came into the world and he fulfilled the law of God for us, once he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for our human sin, that the work after the cross, the work of his humanity was done, it was over. No real need for him to have his humanity anymore. He could leave it behind and all would be well with us here below. And we would be able to make it to the end and into the eternal kingdom all by ourselves. But no, the work of his humanity continues. It must continue. 
We are his disciples here. We are still below on earth. We live in this world. So much sin, so much evil. We are experiencing, we experience so many temptations, troubles and woes. So many powers, so many powers of darkness come against us. So many griefs. How can, how can we endure to the end in the midst of all these things? Who will give us mercy for our sins? Who will give us strength to help us to the end? Who will comfort us and sympathize with us? This is the work of his humanity in heaven. That he is our great high priest. He is Jesus. The perfect man. With a humanity perfectly conformed. To the eternal nature of the son of God. He is able to have sympathy with us in all of our needs. And he is able to have mercy upon us and give us grace to help in every time of need. The humanity that he had on earth, that humanity that was like ours in all things, that was without any sin and was a humanity perfectly able to enter into the divine eternal nature is the humanity that he now has in heaven. We can see his humanity and his sympathy for us in one passage in particular, which will be the last passage we look at this morning. It's found in the Gospel of John and chapter 11. In John chapter 11. We're looking down at verse 33. Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. And then we read of what happened when Mary and some of the Jews came to his tomb beginning in verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her, that is Mary weeping, And the Jews who came with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Jesus saw Mary weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. He saw the Jews weeping as well. What did he do when he saw them weeping? Did he stand aloof from them, from their sorrow? Was he indifferent to their grief? No, John tells us that he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. What that means is that his entire soul was agitated and overcome in a sense with a sense of sorrow, sympathy with sorrow for Mary and for the Jews. You and I feel sorrow. We feel sympathy for others when we know that they are experiencing sorrow. We sympathize with those who are in misery, but our sympathy is a really superficial sympathy when compared to the sympathy of Jesus because of what sin has done to our souls. But in the perfect humanity of Christ, 
in the perfect humanity of Jesus, there is this heart which can feel sympathy and compassion at a depth that we can never experience. And empathy which goes down, John says, into the very depths of his soul so that he feels more love, pity for his fellow man than all the hearts of men combined together. Thomas Goodwin puts it this way, that God is love and Christ is love covered with flesh. We may say it this way, that God has sympathy, but Christ is sympathy covered in human flesh. We read in verse 40, 34 and 35, and he said, Jesus said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. This is why Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of the sorrow that he experienced in this present world, not sorrow for himself, not sorrow because of, not grief because of what he had to go through as this king of glory who came into this world, but sorrow for us, for us, for what sin has done to us. Grief because of all the consequences that sin has brought into the world, especially death. Now the Jews here, they were not believing in Jesus. But when they saw Jesus weep and they saw how great his sympathy was, they were amazed at the depth and the sincerity of it. They said in verse 36, and so the Jews were saying, behold how he loved. They had never seen anything like this before. Behold, how great is his love and his sympathy. And some of them, verse 37, they said, could not this man who opened the eyes of, the, of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? His, his compassion, his sympathy is so great. Could he not have done this great miracle and raised him from the dead, which is what he does in the following verses. And so here we have the man, Jesus Christ who by his own human experience, he knows all of our sorrows and all of our griefs and he enters into it with the full and deep sympathy in his perfect humanity that has been fashioned for him by God the Father. A human soul that can feel all pain, all grief, all trouble that we pass through in this life, a heart of tender mercies, is now incarnate in the person of Jesus and all the love, pity, kindness, and sympathy of the divine nature is now embodied in him forever. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says. He is the exact representation of his nature. He who has seen me has seen the Father, said Jesus. So the last thing really is the application of this to us this morning, which is the unchanging heart of Jesus in glory. The Son of God is immutable. He is always the same. He cannot be subject to any change. And the same must be true in regard to his humanity. That there can never be any lessening, any diminishing of the tender kindness and the sympathy and the compassion of the humanity or of the divine nature of Jesus. And all of the sympathy of Jesus, which we see here, it is unchanging. It still remains the same in heaven for us today 
He is able to sympathize with us in our greatest sorrows, and so he is still able to sympathize with us in our lesser sorrows as well. And this is who he is as our great high priest, fully able to sympathize with us, whatever need we may have in our sorrows and weaknesses in this life. He is able to have mercy upon us. He is able to give us grace and strength in every time of need from his throne. We may always go to him and cast our cares and our anxieties upon him, our fears, our troubles upon him. We have very needy souls. We have very needy souls. We have poor and weak souls. We may take our weak, poor souls and cast them upon him who is able to have sympathy and mercy upon us and give us grace to help in time of need. We think of brethren in other parts of the world who are going through great trials, things that we can hardly even imagine, warfare, persecutions, terrible calamities, tragedies, troubles all around them. We do not know what will come upon us in the future, but we can never despair because no matter how great our troubles may be, and no matter how deep they may seem to be, no matter how dark our path and how great our distress that comes upon us in this life, there is still a throne of God in heaven. And at the right hand of God the Father is his beloved Son, full of compassion, mercy, sympathy, power to help us in every time of need. His human nature, he sympathizes with us. His divine nature has mercy and power to strengthen us. And he is able to comfort us. And so we will never feel alone. The weight of life's troubles will bear us down. But we can always have one who is able to help us. And we can draw near to him. And that's why the writer to the book of Hebrews tells us, let us therefore draw near with confidence to that throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Father and God in heaven, Lord Jesus, thank you for the glory of your person. You are God, you are man forever. You have become the one great mediator between God and man. You are our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And you are at the right hand of your Father in heaven, able, fully able to sympathize with us. You have been tempted in all things as we are yet without any sin. And thank you that we may rest upon you. Your grace has always proven sufficient for us. And you have never left us and you have promised to never forsake us. Oh Lord, help us now, bless your word to us, and help us to believe and to trust and rest upon you in all of these things. And thank you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.